Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Oh, that's very energetic. Way to go. Yes. Very welcome. It's a person with good self-esteem. So, uh, just uh, kicking off a brand new series, and uh, when you look at the logo and it says, you know, one big mess, I want you to put an emphasis on the one. We are one. We are one. Big mess. (laughs) We are one. There's some unity. Well, there ought to be some unity in the church of Jesus Christ, but we better remember that behind the one, there's a big mess. Amen? Amen. So we're thinking about that this morning. I'm going to have a a, a big update for you coming about all the things that are happening with building and all the stuff that's going on. Uh, Just to say, stay faithful. Don't, don't, you know, we, we have three major big things we do here. We have tithes and offerings, and that's because we're actually running a church every week. (laughs) And then we have a a small building project that's going on, so that's happening. And then we also have Faith Promise, which is money we give away to other ministries. And I don't know if you know this, but just because we're doing a building project, they didn't suspend all of their activities. Uh, they're still doing their ministry, and we still want to be supporting them. So as you think about giving, let's just keep up. Let's keep up with all of it, and it's going well. Summer was looking really good till August, and then I don't know what happened. Many of you went on vacation, so come back. <laughs> come back. Can I ask you, with what disposition do you greet the world? If you had to just say, this is my general state of mind, this is what the world sees as my default setting. Not when I'm thinking about it necessarily, because I know I have to put on a happy face when I think about it. But just at my default setting, when I wake up in the morning, what is the disposition with which I greet the world? For some of us, we don't really greet the world. We just live right inside here. (laughs) And the world goes by us, and unless it interrupts us by, you know, drivers at a four-way stop or something that went wrong at Starbucks, we don't really greet the world. But if we do, we might greet the world with anger. Some of us are just angry, and we greet the world with a lot of anger. We do greet the world with anger. It is our disposition. Some of us greet the world with fear. It's a fearful place. There's a lot of things in it that can get you. <laughs> and we, we address it. Some of us, because of fear, we, our disposition is suspicion. We're constantly suspicious of people and motives and politicians and Everything we hear, we're like, yeah, but, because there's a disposition in us of suspicion. What disposition do you believe you greet the world, greet the people in your world with? I do believe there is a precedent in Scripture that would suggest that you and I are called to greet the world with thanksgiving, with a sense of gratitude. To feel blessed and to share the blessing. I think you could trace that from pretty much the beginning of God's word to the end of God's word. This invitation, this call to give praise to God and be thankful. 
And whatever else is going on, still be thankful. And in order to be displaying a disposition of gratitude, there must be in us some sense of thanksgiving, some sense of gratefulness. Because we are one big mess. Paul, in writing this letter to Romans, is addressing this issue. The church in Rome is a big mess. But he wants to remind them that they are one big mess. I don't know if you know this, but the United States uh, has a couple of different mottos that float around in association with it. One of the most long-lasting, it started in about 1776, in fact, it's this phrase, e pluribus unum. Now, I don't know if you know that, but that is the unofficial motto of the United States of America, e pluribus unum. And it is a uh, derivation of the full Latin phrase that the founding fathers said, we like the idea, e pluribus unum, which means out of many, one. We like the idea, but it's too many letters. And so they created the contracted version that we know because it has 13 letters. And there were 13 colonies. How many of you knew that? Man, see, I'm teaching, except for Lauren, I'm teaching stuff. It's just trivia that you can take with you. Not our official motto, but it has been around for a long time. In fact, on the, pre, on the seal of the United States of America, there's an eagle, and in the mouth of the eagle is a ribbon, and written on the ribbon are those words, E Pluribus Unum, the 13 letters that say, out of many, one. We did, in 1956, adopt an official motto of the United States of America. Does anybody know what it is? It's good when people in church don't know this. The official motto adopted in 1956 for the United States of America is, written on our money, in God we trust. There you go. Whether it's true or not, it is our adopted motto. Out of many, one. It's a great idea. It acknowledges the reality that we are not one, we are many. But we serve something that is greater, that causes our diversity to come together in unity. We have some beliefs, some values, some things we seek, and because they are so worthwhile, we will set aside our differences in order to be united. That was the vision of this country. I don't know if you know this, but imagine if tomorrow... Another continent was found on the planet that was unoccupied, largely. Imagine, that's what happened in Europe. In Europe, they said, there's a whole other country. We could go over there, and we could create utopian societies. We could get away from all the dysfunction of society. We could handpick people to take, and we could go over there, and we could find our own little place, and we could build a utopian world. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the early colonies, a lot of the early settlements were utopian societies from Europe where well-educated, well-thought-out people got together, interviewed folks, hand-picked folks to go plant utopian societies. That's why you find towns all over the East Coast like Harmony. And right down the street, guess what you'll find? New Harmony. Because <laughs> the average existence of a utopian society in colonized America was six months because it doesn't matter if you handpick people they're still a big mess and if there's not some reason for them to be one they will quickly divide they'll turn on each other 
and it matters. And isn't that what leadership is? Isn't leadership putting forward an agenda and an idea that is worth following? So that people of diverse beliefs and diverse backgrounds come together for a greater good. That's leadership. It takes no great gift of leadership to lead people who already think like you do. It's trying to lead people who don't think like you do. Who don't see things the same way you do. So Paul has run into some issues. It turns out Paul did not plant the church in Rome, but he always wanted to go there. It turns out when he finally gets there, he's not as happy to be there. But that's another part of the story. So to give you a little bit of background, the, the reality is that the story of the Roman church begins in 63 B.C. And it begins when Pompey, the Roman emperor, annexes the Holy Land to become a part of the Roman Empire. He's dealing with the last kings of the Hasmonean dynasty in Israel, and they negotiate a plan, and out of that plan comes a new annexed part of the Holy Land that is now part of the Roman Empire. And with that annexation, Pompey takes literally hundreds of thousands of slaves from Israel, Jewish families, and he relocates them to the city of Rome. And the massive Roman community uh, begins in 63 BC. By 100 years later, we have a large, very large Roman colony inside the city of Rome, a very large Jewish population. Now, we know that a couple of things have happened. The letter uh, to Romans is not written until around 56, 57 AD. And so if you kind of play with those numbers, then you know that the church probably started about 20 years earlier. We believe a direct result of the day of Pentecost when folks who had been over in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost hear the message of Jesus Christ spilled out from the upper room and they take that information back to Rome and the church gets planted and a couple of things happen. One of the things that happens is it causes disturbances among the Jewish residents in the synagogues. And we were told by historians that there was a, an issue going on at the instigation of Christus. Well, we think it's a corruption of the word Christ. And that in fact, what was happening in those Jewish communities is those people came back from Jerusalem, having gone to Passover, they came back and they got it back in their synagogue and said, hey, we heard this message about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. We think he's the Messiah. And some stuff started to happen and there were trouble. And so Claudius expels all the Jews from Rome. Expels all the Jews from Rome. Now, the Roman church has already been going on, and it's a mixture. It's a mixture of people who are Jewish, and it's a mixture of now Gentiles who have come to know this new message about Jesus. And so it's a messy mixture of people who come from pluralistic, paganistic beliefs, and the Jews that were very restricted into their ideas of Judaism and the 618 elements of the law, and they're having this sort of controversy inside of Rome. But they've all found this new message of hope, and they become this church. And this church is one big mess. And out of this sort of setting, you kind of get the idea that now this church has gone along and some of the folks over there that are more on the Gentile side and the pagan side, they're finding great liberty. They've only been serving gods and thinking about gods who are, you know, so one day they like them and one day they don't. The gods of the old pagan systems were playthings. The gods used human beings as playthings. That'd be a great faith, wouldn't it? You know, all fell down. I guess the gods are making a joke. 
you know, had an accident. Well, the gods are just playing around with me. You know, I don't feel good today. I think the gods are sitting on my head. That whole idea. And along comes the gospel message of hope of a loving God. And so the pagans are celebrating. They have a freedom. They have a freedom in their faith. Sometimes they have way too much freedom. (laughs) And then over on the other side of the church, you have some very serious-minded Jewish folks who have a lot of rules. And they're willing to say to those freedom-loving people, you're going to need to reel it in. Have you read the letters? It's going on in a lot of churches in the New Testament. You know, you people can't eat food offered to idols. Yes, we can. No, you can't. Yes, we can. No, you can't. Yes, we can. All that's going on. Claudius expels the Jews from Rome. They're gone five years. Can you imagine what has happened to the church in Rome in five years of the absence of these rule-loving, rule-keeping, rule-teaching people? Well, it's gone completely Gentile. It's gone completely crazy. They have no respect for that. They stopped singing the hymns. I mean, no regard for the Jewish traditions. They're reading modern translations of Scripture now. Completely crazy. I'm making this up. (laughs) Not that any of us relate to this. And Paul gets wind of the of the infighting now that had, the Jews come back and they're like, what have you done to our church? <laughs> whoa, whoa, we started this thing. I mean, let me just say three words to you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You guys come lately here, but we're the real deal. We decide what is orthodoxy. Paul hears about what's going on, and that's what inspires the letter He writes the letter to reunify this divided church in Rome. Because guess what? They can't go down the street to another church that is more in keeping with their prejudices. Because there's not another Christian church down the street. This is the Christian church in Rome. And so they've got to get along with each other because they have not yet learned that they can just go down the street and open a new church. (laughs) They're going to learn that later. (laughs) And they're going to learn it well. (laughs) But right now... He writes a letter to say, you guys need to get it together. For the first four chapters, this is the message. You're a mess. You're a mess. You Gentiles, you're a mess. But don't be discouraged because the Jews are a mess too. And in fact, you could argue that the Jews should be less of a mess because they had more information. Have you read the letter? Let me, let me, everybody doing okay? I realize this is kind of heavy. But I think you can do it. I think you can do it. Again, you should all be so excited when that many pages of the sermon get turned over. <laughs> this is a summation of the first four chapters. Romans 3.9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. I don't know, but that is not really drawing your audience in. You know? There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sins. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Paul's logic is to say to this group of people that are fighting about what's right and what's wrong and what should be and what's the liturgy and what's the theology, these folks who've been honing down what they believe and their politics and all the things that are going on. And he says to them, I want you to remember this. What you share in common is lostness. Wow, that was so good. What you share in common is that you got lost. You don't know what you think you know. As much as you think you know it. (laughs) And so maybe you want to pump the brakes a little. Maybe you want to just settle in just a little on that self-righteous thing. Or arrogance thing. Or you get it and other people don't thing. Because let's be honest. You Gentiles. You're a mess. You're a mess. And if you want to go back and read those chapters... It's a lot of verses about the Gentiles and how they got to be a mess. And then as the Jews are like, I told you. I told you it was a Gentiles. I knew it was a Gentiles. I've been saying it was a Gentiles. And then he says, and you Jews, you're a mess too. You're a mess for a whole different set of reasons because you came from a different place and your lostness was unique to you. But you're a mess. And you share this in common. And you ought to be able to look at each other and go, I don't know how you became a mess. I just know how I became a mess. And actually, I don't know fully how I became a mess. Because sometimes the way I'm a mess is not apparent to me, even though it's sometimes apparent to the people around me. Can I at least get an amen on that? (laughs) But whatever I did, wherever I came from, whatever trauma I've been through, whatever sin I committed, whatever shame I carry, whatever guilt is a part of me, Whatever I try to justify through whatever system of faith I try to manipulate so that I feel better about myself. We all come from a place of messiness. And somewhere we ought to be able to look at each other and acknowledge and understand that it's not just us. It's every human being we meet. We're messy, messy human beings, aren't we? As much as we try to clean ourselves up and fix it all up and get it all put together, we've got some messiness about us. It's just true. It's just true. And Paul says, so what does God do to this mess? He meets it with grace. Not only do we share in common our lostness, but we share in common our foundness. (laughs) That wherever messiness we come from, we encounter the same sort of loving grace from a loving God who doesn't care if we came from over there or over there. He doesn't care if it's this kind of shame or that kind of guilt. He doesn't care if it was trauma that was inflicted on us. He doesn't care what our parents did to us. He doesn't care about this. He just says, I'm going to meet your mess with forgiveness and grace. That's what I'm going to meet it with. And it's a gift. It's a messy, messy gift. But I want you to receive the gift because I want you to go through your life in a disposition of gratitude. And I want you to look at other people with gratitude. 
I want the first thing you see is not their lostness. I want you to see your foundness. <laughs> I want that to be the first thing you see. You should, you should, know, you should see I lost. I, if I'm okay, there's hope for you. <laughs> Amen? Amen? We kind of got it upside down right now, don't we? We can easily see other people's lostness. We forget to celebrate our foundness. This is what it sounds like when he gets to it in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, and you know, when Paul says, therefore, you got to see what it's there for. That's just a little homiletical tool because he does it in every letter. Blah, 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 four chapters. Chapter 5, therefore, based on blah, 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 here's what you do. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved through God's wrath, through, from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? In other words, don't just receive the gift, live in it every day. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Six quick points about why this messy gift matters to you and me. Number one, it justifies us. It justifies us. I, I think if I could say to all of you today, at the end of the service, and I've used this illustration before, if you've been here a long time, if I could say at the end of the service, I want you to gather at the back, bring me all of your student loan information, your visa card, all of your indebtedness. I just, today, we're going to fix it all. How excited would you be? Yeah. Some people in the room who don't have debt are like, no, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> Nobody helped me. I don't even see any reading. The... What Paul is saying in this moment is this. You had incurred an unpayable debt of guilt and shame and lostness and messiness. And here's how God met it. He justified you through his son, Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever reconciled a checkbook in this room? Okay. A checkbook. <laughs> it's a little thing that you wrote. They were paper. They were kind of like money, but not. You had to have money in the... Anyway. How many of you do reconcile your, your checkbook? Good. Or your bank account? Let's, let's, let's advance it. How many of you go on the app and reconcile your bank account? Good for you. Now, how many of you love correcting entries? Just a few. How many of you have to find the last penny? Well, you can't do both. Oh. 
So the word here is that God puts it all right. He doesn't make a correcting entry on your account. He does not say, all right, well, you're a mess. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to cover it up. No, nope. I'm going to justify you. That's the word. That's the language. I'm going to get inside your story. I'm going to get inside your brokenness. I'm going to get inside your shame. And I'm going to get inside your guilt. And I'm going to pay every penny of it. And I'm going to reconcile you to God. I'm going to make it right. And this is a gift of God. And so here's what you share in common. You're a big mess, but each of you for the asking. When we repent, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to make us right, to justify us, to freely set right what was broken so that for the rest of our lives, we don't have to journey in a place of brokenness. Now, will we get broken again? Well, my experience is, I love what Paul says, you need not sin. But when you do, you have an advocate through Jesus Christ. So sometimes we have to come. Sometimes we have a tough week and we have to come a lot and say, you know, God, I don't think, I don't think my attitude was appropriate if we're self-aware. Sometimes other people have to tell us. I don't think your attitude was appropriate. Well, I'll tell you. My attitude is just right. Justified. What's the gift? What's the messy gift? Justification. All of you in your lostness were met by a graceful God who met the one big mess with justification. I'm not just going to make you look better. I'm going I'm to fix what's broken. I'm going to justify. The gift is a gift of justification. Number two, we were granted access, verse two, through whom we have gained access. This word in Greek is a really powerful word. It has two different meanings. The common meaning is this. You've gained access to royalty. This phrase was used whenever you were introduced to royalty. You gain access. What does that mean? It means you're connected to a source, a resource that will help you in your life. Like you can call up the king. Like that's the image. From now on, you, you not only were put right, but you were given access to the king of kings so that tomorrow when you wake up and you say, God, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the world and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in me and I'm going to need a little something in order to deal with it. And we're praying to the person, have been granted access to the person that has the power to actually do some work in the very real circumstances of our life as well as empowering us for the journey. And that's such a great gift. The second meaning of the word is this. You've been granted access. It was used in relationship to a ship that had been given clearance for safe harbor. That you can get out of the storm and you can get out of the chaos and you can come in and you can tie off and you can take a nap. There's a safe place to rest. This access is a place that I don't have to go around in the same turmoil I used to be in. Not only has my mess been justified, and is it continuing to get justified every time I spill something, I get to clean it up by the grace of God. When I confess, He cleanses, but I'm granted access, strength, connection, resource to go out and to live better and smarter and deeper and wiser. And I want to do that. I want to do that. Not only am I granted access but I'm empowered. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. In other words, he said, our lives are no longer wasting away, but in the brokenness of life, God promises to use it to build depth 
and character in us. Now, that's a little switch. How many of you ever have a week like that where you just go, what else can go wrong? Anybody have those? How many ever having a day like that now? All right. Because I don't know about you, but Sundays are a day like that often for people. I don't know why, but that's true. Like if you ever want to have a really good fight with your spouse, go to church. (laughs) I mean, on the way, you'll be like, I hope God touches you today. (laughs) Either he needs to touch you or take me home because I'm telling you. Because something about showing up in God's house, I don't know what happens, but it, sometimes you walk in the room, you're like, boy, it's a, tense, it's a tense room. And when you say things preaching, people will be like, are you listening to him? One big mess. He's talking about you. But my perspective shifts. I don't look at it like, oh, man, here's one more thing. I look at it like, okay, this is life. Life is broken and it's messy. The whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth because it hasn't all gotten fixed yet. The promise is it's coming, but it's not all fixed. Let's be honest, it's not all fixed yet. And so when things in my life break, when they happen, when, when, when I'm angry or hurting or broken or grieving, when I'm going through that process, God says, listen, I'm going to come beside you and I'm not going to waste your pain. I'm not saying it'll be worth it, but I'm telling you, I'm going to work inside of it to empower you, to create in you perseverance and endurance and hope. And I want you to look at it like that. God's not wasting this. As hard as this is, as much as I don't like it, as much as I'd like to change it, he's not going to waste it. He's going to grow me something. I'm going to be deeper. I'm going to learn something. I'm going to connect. Now, some of you are getting ahead because you're saying, I want more than that. So Paul says this, not only are you empowered, but number four, you can be a realist with the gift. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, he said, I'm not talking about you going out and having a positive attitude and thinking positive. At least that's not all I'm talking about. Because hope does not disappoint. It does not put us to shame. I'm saying that not only do I want you to look at it differently, but I'm going to work in your circumstances to make them different. Now, sometimes that's a long haul. Can I get an amen? Some of us have been waiting for God to come through on the circumstances for a long, long time. And what we know if we read this book is some of those circumstances don't get fixed in our lifetime. But we know that hope does not disappoint. Who hopes for what they already have, but if we do not yet have it, we wait for it patiently. We live in hope. This stuff is building something in me, but God's working on my stuff. He's working on my issues. He's working on my kids. He's working on my grandkids. He's working on things I can't see or control. And by the way, I love to control things. Don't you? I mean, if God were really going to do something special, he would consult with me. We'd make a plan. I would tell him what needs to be done, and he would fix it, and I would feel in control. That would really help my faith. Amen? But instead, I live by faith. (laughs) Because it wouldn't take any faith if God just did what I told him to do. 
Instead, I trust him that he's working in all of those circumstances. I can be a realist about life. I don't have to be, you know, disconnected. And by the way, I don't have to tell people going through hard times, oh, just hang on. God's going to bless you in this hard time. I don't have to say that kind of stuff. Instead, I can say, I'm praying for you. I know it's a mess. I don't know how it works. I just know that God is going to be with you. He's granted you access to royalty. Don't forget you can ask. Don't forget there's a safe harbor. Maybe today you just need to lay it down because you're just tired. You're just weary. And that's okay. Just a couple more quick ones. Here they are. He says, you're undeserving. You see, at just the right time when we were powerless. I don't know how many of you think like this, but... I think like this. When I'm having a good week and a good day, I think God likes me way better than when I'm having a bad day or a bad week. Anybody else? Wow, only three of us. We're going to get together after. <laughs> if there are any like counselors in the room, would you remain? There's three of us that really need help. Okay, how many of you do this? There's some things I need to ask God for, but I'm going to wait till I have a little better... I'm going to have a better couple hours. I'm going to read my Bible for a little bit. <laughs> and I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, then I'm going to ask God for some stuff. But right now, it's a little dicey. <laughs> Nobody else? Wow, I am just the poster child of dysfunction. <laughs> Paul says, listen, in your lostness, he didn't die for you on your best day. He died for you on your worst day. Don't forget that. Don't forget that His grace came to you at a time when you were ill-prepared. <laughs> don't forget that His grace came to you not because of anything you had done. And don't forget that His grace goes to others for the very same reason. And maybe you should be this person who is practicing that kind of attitude and disposition in the world. I've received an incredible gift. I hope you get it too. I want you to have the same grace and the same love and the same forgiveness and the same foundness. Finally, the last one is this. The gift involves unity. It involves coming together. Since you've been justified by His blood, while you were still lost, how much more now that you have this in common should you come together in the celebration of reconciliation? Because not only do you have in common your lostness, but you have in common your foundness. And wherever you're coming from, hear me, wherever you're coming from, we're all going to the same place. Wherever you're coming from, we're all being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we don't care as much about where we're coming from as we do about where we're going. And so because we care about where we're going, we want to just gather together and be unified in Jesus Christ. But that takes effort and energy, doesn't it? Do you know who's writing this book? The guy who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees who stood on the podium of self-righteousness. Everybody with me? The guy that said, I am so right about how I see the world and about how I see God that these people who have started following this guy, Jesus Christ, are a perversion of Judaism. And here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to seek them out. I'm going to beat them. I'm going to put them in jail and I'm going to kill them. Everybody remember the story? Until Jesus appears out of heaven. That doesn't happen for a lot of us. But for some of us, it would take that, wouldn't it? 
to get us off our high horse. That's a Texas word. I don't know. Does other people use that word? Get us off our high horse. Because <laughs> he was sure he was right until Jesus himself appeared out of heaven and said, Stop it. Remember? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? I am the Christ you persecute. Oh, shoot. <laughs> That's probably not good. I probably ought to stop that. I thought I was doing good, but it turns out I'm not. And Paul now throws his heart wide open. And he says, not just, I'm not just going to love the Jews and ask them. I'm going to love every single, I'm a Gentile. I'm going to go all over this world and everybody I find. You know what I'm going to do? Out of a heart of gratitude for the gift of God in me, I'm going to extend that heart to others. And it doesn't matter where we come from. What we share in common is our lostness. What matters is where we're going. And where we're going is we're being constantly changed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's our pursuit. That's who we are. That's what we're about. And what unites us is greater than what divides us. So much so, he says, you've been unified. You've received the reconciliation of God. Now you go be ambassadors of reconciliation as though God himself is making his appeal through you. Is that who we are? Is that the disposition with which we face the world? It's our calling. God, as we respond to your word, and we think about all who are thirsty, we think about the power of your grace, we think about what it means for us to just confess our own mess and to be united by your love and by your grace, would you please help us? We need you. We need your help. We need your guidance. I'm asking as we sing these words that you would do work in our hearts, that we could confess some things and repent of some things and, and really that you would bring this body together. We pray it over the whole vast church of Jesus Christ, but we want to start right here. Unite us. Soften our hearts. Soften our minds. Create in us a deep sense of the gift we've received, this messy gift. And may we practice that messy gratitude and gifting to all the people around us. God, help us, we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.